friends. Hello. My name is Ben Tartine. This is the Cultivating Tove podcast. And uh, this is a bonus edition because I just wanted to do a bonus edition. Actually, it's because one of our sister churches uh, out in Hillsboro, Oregon, one of the west side suburbs of Portland, they asked me to preach on Ecclesiastes 3 recently. And I I found so much connection to you know, what Kohelet is teaching us in Ecclesiastes 3 uh, to what we've been seeing in the way of Jesus over this last year, really, too. I just thought, eh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this to uh, a recording from the shed as well, because it's just really beautiful. It is, it is tove to be with you, and I'm, and I'm glad about that. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where we're, where we're headed, verses 1 through 15. And I want to open with a thinking question, which, you know, is often our MO here. So here's the question. How would you feel at work if you showed up on time and worked hard all week, but your coworker was late and lazy all the time, and in the end, you both received an equal bonus. All right, that'd be weird, yeah? Not very fair. Why should the lazy coworker gain the same when you actually worked for it and they did not? It, that doesn't compute in our very, very cultural, common understanding of what justice is. However, think about this for a second. Consider any moment in your life when you... Uh, received a good gift from somebody, and it really changed you, and it helped you significantly, perhaps in a time of need, uh, and it told you something about that person's care and concern, maybe even love for you. How how does the receiving of a good gift uh, open you to the character and intent of that giver toward you? And if this has ever happened, somebody's, and it doesn't have to be a major expensive, you know, or whatever. It was, it was that moment where some, somebody gave you attention right in the, in the moment you needed it. And it said something about them. It changed you in a good way. The, now notice the gift itself changed you, made you realize that you are loved. So think about that through the lens of a bonus, which is an extra gift. In our concept of justice, it's to the one who's done well. But if you start and say, yeah, but if giving a gift makes both of them end up doing well, and if I have unlimited gift to give, by golly, it kind of makes sense that it would be a good thing to give to the hard worker and the lazy one uh, equally just in the sense that the gift itself has the power to even bring the lazy one into a deeper understanding of who they are and what's governing that laziness. So the question is, is it possible that the giving of a generous gift can encourage the receiver to live into it? You know, and, and that the gift actually could change the person who receives it, even so much as to become worthy of that gift. Okay, so here we are. I, I, I want to read a little bit from an author named Peter Rollins, and, and he's talking about the same idea, and he puts it this way. 
The idea is captured in the ancient wisdom that tells us how people are not lovable before they are loved. For example, if at an early age we're shown love and affection, we are more likely to grow into people who evoke love and affection from others than if we were treated badly. It is as we are offered the gifts of grace and gifts of mercy and gifts of love that we're actually drawn toward becoming people who exhibit grace and mercy and love. Hmm, I think there's a lot of truth to that, and it makes me think a lot of the Apostle Paul's language of being, quote, saved by grace. Grace in the New Testament means gift. The gift is given generously and without preference. We learn that about God's giving to us. And when received, when we receive his gift, the gift changes us in a healing and life-restoring way. So we're faced with a juxtaposition right away before we get into Ecclesiastes 3, and that is this. Imagine two hands. On one hand, we have the average mainstream way of understanding gain. You gain goodness if you think and act well. And on the other hand, we have the story of the scriptures, which says in many ways that you, you think and act well when you receive the gift of goodness toward you. And, and, and it says, it implies in many ways that you cannot build a life for yourself or gain goodness for yourself if you play things the right way. Just do it just right. But the promise is that the goodness is a gift to be received and embraced. Might sound a little too philosophical, but that's the whole point this morning is to actually flesh that, that juxtaposition out to see perhaps if, if there's another way. So this gift gets a lot clearer in the New Testament when Jesus says, I, me, I am the way, the truth and the life. So the gift is not a way to get somewhere or how to make it a more pleasurable and satisfying destination. The destination is a way of life. I am the way, the truth, the life, says Jesus. I think we can add, I am the gift to you. So it's not, you need to get to me. I, I'm, I'm showing up in your neighborhood and I'm coming to you. I'm Emmanuel, God with you. And the gift is right now. The question is, do you want to receive it right now? And the goal then is not gain, but a way to live in a world that we have all uh, an extremely limited understanding of, you know, he is teaching us that the journey is our destination. The journey itself, the way of life is our destination. It's not, here's what you got to do to get somewhere. And that idea has really infiltrated our church life. And often it was just taught to me as like the Bible's teaching as I was growing up in my house, work harder, do better. You've got to get somewhere. And that's going to be the place of satisfaction. Well, not just for our day, because we're reading Kohelet, you know, the teacher, uh, way, way back Old Testament. And this man is wrestling with something fierce in the idea of work, what it means to gain goodness or to work for it. And then the futility of the whole enterprise if we roll with the average mainstream way of the world. So I'm confident that his teaching in our passage today offers more.
So turn with me. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15 and read it all the way through. And then we'll get into the context, which is so, so important if we're going to have any shot at understanding this. And then we'll circle back to the text once more with a stronger foundation from that context, and we can interpret it well. Does that sound all right? That sounds good to me. So I'm going to read from the ESV today. I haven't read from that version in our podcast yet. I don't I don't tend toward it. Uh, but as I was preaching at this church, they had me read from the ESV. So that's the version I have here in my notes. So away we go. It's a great translation anyhow. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I'll start in verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. (laughs) It doesn't say the last part in the Bible. Just a time for war and a time for peace. Verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into humans' hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man, to humankind. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. Now, there's a lot. There's a lot that is challenging to me in that passage. I'm not sure about you. Things like a time for war and a time for hate and a time to die. <laughs> like, uh, notice right out of the gate, he just says there's a time. He doesn't say that's a good thing. There's no judgment given in this list. In the earlier chapters, and we'll come to them, there's another list very similar but more universal or cosmic-sized. <laughs> and uh, and there, too, he just says this is what happens. It's not – it's a good thing. So that's an important note right out of the gate. But I don't know that we often read it that way, just by the sort of premise that the Bible – 
that I was given about the Bible going into it, I just sort of instinctively used to hit that thing and be like, oh, well, it's here and it's in the Bible, which is true. And it says there's a time for this, which means God is saying that's a good thing. It's just all very instinctive understanding. So if I didn't know better, this sounds kind of like one of those feel-good passages about God's sovereignty that gives us a sort of vacuous encouragement just as long as you don't think about it too long. And and I, you know, I, I don't mean to be flippant, um, and I think I can tend to be around this issue, but I've I've just I've endured so many conversations of where we're trying to get at the heart of something really uh, problematic or difficult in the world, and and then th- we come to a passage like this, and and the answer is something so simplistic, like. Well, God's sovereign, and it says right here, you know, there's a time for everything, so don't think about it anymore and just, you know, trust. Well, it does It does offer, I think, a temporary reprieve from the gravity of, of the, the questions of our life. But those kinds of uh, thoughts, I don't think the, the Scripture doesn't bear that out. Um, And I don't think that's what this passage is getting at here. If it is the idea here, then I think we don't have to spend much more time. You know, it's a familiar interpretation and it works really well with um, the American dream. Get what you can, enjoy the fruits of your labor. All else is pretty much futile. So work hard, play hard you know, have a wife and a kid and, a, and or kids and get a good house and get settled and secure and have a good retirement and hopefully you'll die in the arms of a loving wife and, you know, it'll all work out well. What What more really is there? Do the best you can and enjoy it. And I'll just tip my whole hand here and say I do not think at all that this passage is an ancient Hebrew way of saying, get your kicks because the rest is beyond your control anyhow. And I think at a, a cursory reading produces that interpretation pretty often. You know, here's all these different times and epochs and eras that are totally out of your control. So what's the best thing you could possibly do? Man, enjoy your day and enjoy one another. And, the, and there is the problem with falsehood <laughs> or, or wrong thoughts or ideas is that they're often connected to fault. There's goodness and falsehood in that notion. Because we'll see him say, enjoy your food, enjoy your beverage, enjoy one another. And that is true. However, we're talking about gain versus receive, to gain something or receive, and so we must continue. All right. So we can't just go quickly past this passage. I think we have to situate it in its context, and so so we can hear what this author, now in the first two books, it's Kohelet, the king, and the teacher. In this passage, it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn to Kohelet, the wise. So consider the passages in the first two uh, chapters. That's what we have to do to establish context here. In chapter 1, verse 3, we get the big overarching like meta question. What does mankind gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? <laughs> you know, hey that sounds pretty familiar. Remember what we just read in verse 3-9? What gain has the worker from his toil? So, in our passage today, 3, 1 through 15, 
right there at the end of the list of times, the question is, what could you gain from your work? Now I'm saying that if you were to rewind back to the opening of the book of Ecclesiastes itself, third verse in, there's the question. What does mankind gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So right out of the gate, I want you to see, okay, this is the sort of, like I like to do sometimes when I'm teaching is open with a question. Well, here I feel very validated because <laughs> Kohelet opens with this question and then he wrestles with it for, you know, page after page after page. So I can relate to that myself. Okay, so here's here it is. What gain does a worker have from this toil? And I don't know about you, but I asked that question. What is the point? You're sitting in class. You're sitting at work. You're cleaning the garage yet again. You're like, uh, it's like that old story of Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill and just to have it roll back down and you just keep pushing it up the hill. What, what are we doing here? I saw an old friend on Facebook this week posting. He's a hard worker in the auto industry, and it appeared that he was just kind of really in a wrestling place and said this. My thought for today is this. What makes me keep grinding away? Not married, no kids. I hope soon I can have that answer or a reason to grind every day. I read tons of posts on why people do what they do. The people I look up to a ton are, and then he lists out three people, they they're, they all have families to grind for and to keep them going. God bless you guys for what you do and what you stand for. I just need to find my reason to grind away at this work every day. Huh. You know, <laughs> that is the same. I think he's channeling Kohelet. That's a human cry. It's a hu- very human question. Let's read Ecclesiastes 1, verses 3 through 11 again, uh, or not again, but let's read that as a way to set context and pay attention to the fact that Kohelet gives this big question here uh, in chapter 1, verse 3. So there it is. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And then hear these words that he adds. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and the goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. Now you, you hear Jesus when Nicodemus is like, what do you mean born again, born of the Spirit? And Jesus is like, who can talk about the Spirit? Like the, It's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. So here's Kohelet reflecting on this sort of the stuff of, the, of life and of experience that's so beyond your control and seems to be quite cyclical. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been done is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. 
There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Okay, so there's how he opens this book, and we see that question we've seen repeated, and and just once again, he's not evaluating the state of affairs. He's just saying, this is what happens to us. He's not saying, you know, and it's it's good that the wind blows this way or it's bad. That sucks. He's not going down that road. He's saying because of, I think, and he'll get into this big time, this total lack of control we have, life seems to be cyclical and futile. So what next? How does this help us? Well, he to help us understand what he's getting at, we will continue here. Uh, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So that's chapter 1, verse 12. I've been the king. And I applied. Now he's going to say, here's what I've done. Here's been my experience so far. I've applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. <laughs> okay. I have seen everything what is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Chasten the wind. Verse uh, 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So you can't fix stuff. You can't restore or redeem things the way that you want. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, so to know the difference. And I perceived that this is also but a striving after the wind. Four, verse uh, 18, in much wisdom is much vexation. So in much wisdom comes much confusion, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. <laughs> Your college admissions department never said that, did they? <laughs> kids, you, you kids listen, and when your parents tell you to do your homework, you can open it to this passage and say, but mom, dad, when I increase in knowledge, it increases in my sorrow. <laughs> And then see what they say. I love it. Okay, well, he realizes that he's got nothing in particular to grind away for. That's Kohalat, the king here. He said, I've done everything you can do, and it all ends up pretty futile. And so he says, it's all vain. It's vanity, I say. Okay, now, note here, this is important. Vanity in the Bible is not just about, you know, how you look, like you're obsessed with designer clothes and a great haircut. More specifically, it means doing something that has no meaningful result. And that is something uh, Paul the Apostle will pick up, on. Like, for example, in the Galatian church. When he's writing to them, toward the end, he'll be like, man, I was hanging out with you guys. You would have done anything for me. Things were good. You were, you were learning the gospel, and it was awesome. And I hear now that you're winging off on some wild tangent. You're leaving the gospel. And then he asks, was all my work with you in vain? And, and that means, was everything that I did to live and minister and teach among you, did it have no meaningful effect? So this idea of vanity is, is just, it has no meaningful effect. Well, Kohelet starts with that idea. And as you might know, he keeps it alive through his writing. Vanity, 
doing things with no meaningful effect. Our generation today captures it in the famous word, you know, whatever. So what? It doesn't do anything anyway. All right, now notice here, chapter 2, he talks about his first half of life, and he says, and I'm going to just paraphrase through this, maybe I'll try to find find pleasure, he says, and that turned out to be a pointless pursuit. Laughter even, what's the point? He talks about wine. I use substances like wine uh, to help my body find calm and cheerfulness. I looked for wisdom, tried to avoid foolishness. I worked a ton. I built stuff. I built parks and was successful. And I had tons of silver and gold. And that gave me access to art. And I had singers. And oh, man, he goes on and on. I could engage with all of the sexual pleasures that I desired. I, I sought fulfillment in everything I could imagine. Concubines, the whole spiel. And this made me a total winner. Sure, I did grow in wisdom. Yes, I had everything that I wanted under the sun. I think he says there's uh, nothing my eyes saw that I desired. I didn't have. I wanted it. I wanted it all, and I got it all. I became great. I became great. Verse eleven. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, <laughs> dun dun dun. dun all was vain. None of it had a meaningful effect, and it was like striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Oh, man, there it is, that same sentence again. What can be gained? What's the use? Why grind away all day long? Cole, that's on a roll now, and he keeps going. Wisdom and madness, chase it all you want. It gets forgotten anyway. Verse 17, what is done on this earth grieves me deeply, and that means it must be vanity. It's like striving after the wind. Then back to the toil and grinding away and under the sun, and what's the use? He goes, and we see the same sentence again in chapter 2, verse 24. He says, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and be merry or find enjoyment in his toil. He says that and then says, this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Okay, it seems like we're getting somewhere. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. Okay, that sounds very common, doesn't it? Yeah, we get that. God gives good stuff to people who who win and gain, and he takes away from the— Okay, and then just when you think, like, Kohelet, you're getting it. You, you, you are understanding the way it works. When you do good, God gives to you. When you do bad to the sinner, he, take, he gives them only crappy work, you know? And then Kohelet says, yeah, you can learn all that, still totally pointless. And so he concludes— this is also vanity and a striving after wind. Wow. And so at the end of verse 26, which is the last verse before our passage today in chapter 3, notice what we have established in these whole first two chapters. Kohelet the king starts out quite pessimistic, and that carries through those first two chapters. You know, vanity, uh, this is futile kind of language. Well, then that becomes, the, the list of actions becomes a sort of poetic interlude between two main ideas. The list of actions, uh, meaning the, the list of times, a time to be born, a time to die, a time. So the other ones were 
kind of cosmic realities. These are the actions of humanity, are the list in our chapter three today. Well, that list I'm saying, a time to be born, a time, that's this moment in between two big ideas. The first one is all about vanity, but the second one here is going to move toward a new word. They'll use the word yape, uh, Hebrew for beautiful, a, a handsome, a lovely or fitting thing. This word is very similar to the Hebrew word tov, which is what God says when he makes a judgment about his creation. When he makes it, it is tov. Yapa and tov are both, I would say, synonymous and equal. Uh, they mean the same kind of thing. Interesting that when God finishes making the world, he does not say it's all vanity. He says it is good. It is tov. So right there, when Koholet says it's all vanity, and we're taught that what the Bible says is true, we have God saying the world is really good and beautiful and right-ordered, and we have Koholet saying the exact opposite. So we have to wrestle with them. That's what we're doing. All right. So in verse 311, Koholet will give a judgment. Remember, the list itself has no judgment. It's just, here's the times. Here's the times. Then he'll actually say something, and the judgment will be that there's something beautiful and good and right and lovely in all of this. And that piques our interest, doesn't it? So here we go. Let's Now we've set context, and let's go back through 3 verses 1 through 15 once more and see what Kohelet is really getting at. All right? Chapter 3, verse 1. For, every, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and to die, to plant and to harvest, to kill and to heal, to break down, to build up, to weep and to laugh, mourn and dance, cast away stones, gather stones together. You know, you're skipping stones at the river or you've got to make a fire pit, one of the two. Embrace or refrain from embracing, the time to seek and to lose, to keep and cast away, to tear and then sew back together, to keep quiet and a time to speak, to love and a time to hate, a, a time for war and a time for peace. These things will always come about in our life. He's not saying that there's a time for you to hate that God wants you to hate. He's saying there'll be a time that you hate, believe me. <laughs> Again, not a judgment on those. So just like that original list, you can hear me really wanted to emphasize that, yeah. This is this is a observation of reality, not a judgment until we get to verse 11. So verse 9 repeats that sentence, doesn't it? What gain has the worker from his toil? We're back to that same theme. Then we're going to answer it differently. I have seen the business that God has given, hmm, given to the children of man to be busy with. Now that's an interesting verb. The business, the work that God has given to the children to be busy with. And then verse 11, he has made, and actually, this is our ESV we're reading. In the Hebrew, it's a present tense. So he makes, he makes everything beautiful in its time. That's an important distinction. And this is one of the few places I'll be like, mark that in the margin of your Bible. 
Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, that is a present tense verb for making, doing, creating. He makes everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning. Notice the two major assertions here. One, God makes everything. And two, everything is beautiful in its time. God makes everything. Everything is beautiful in its time. Not everything is beautiful as it is, or everything is beautiful if you just look at it the right way. It's not a, it's not a happy-go-lucky, yeah, just be positive. It's everything is beautiful in its time. That could be a moment. It could be a time of completion. That verb makes, that God makes everything beautiful. It's he's making. This is really important. Even a worship, a popular contemporary worship song about this. God, you make beautiful things out of dust. You make are making. The creation work of God is still underway, and I cannot emphasize how important it is to have this kind of theology of creation because of the way the scriptures detail it. It hasn't ended. That's a common way of understanding. Like he created stuff back then, and then we just broke it all, and so now it's all just about repairing it, and then later on it'll get good. That is not the theology of the Bible. Jesus never talks that way. It's this constant, present, affecting and working and creating and renewing and healing in everything. It's like God is always at work doing that. And I think to embrace this idea, it takes a, it's a deep trust. It gives us an important understanding of the creation. And I think Kohelet is realizing that this goodness is going to register differently for each person. So, so that makes it even more difficult, right? Do you have the same idea about what is good as one of our rioters in downtown Portland? Do you agree with the Muslim community or the Native American community or the Jewish community about what is good and right and beautiful? Do you agree with the Southern Baptist community or the Episcopalian, you know? Uh, maybe how about the Democratic or Republican vision for our nation? You know, you walk it out a little bit and it's like, man, our individual ideas of what is good or what is wise or what is foolish, whew, that's tough. It's really tough <laughs> to figure that out. And I think Kohelet says that. I pursued all that wisdom and folly and what everything I could learn taught me but it ended up looking pretty futile. God, however, doesn't have variant and subjective understandings of goodness or beauty. He defines it. He makes it. And he's making it self-evident, not subjective. He's not making good according to you and me. He's making good, period, according to his perfect love and all that is true. That's a beautiful thing. Therefore, if we can recognize that the times or the seasons, the appointed moments and eras of life are way, way, way beyond anything we can control, then we've found two huge teachings already. Spend your days finding satisfaction in how much you create for yourself and control for your own good. And you'll soon be posting on Facebook, why do I grind away at this work? What's the point? 
life becomes utterly futile and vain and pointless with that kind of goal and heart and mind. However, there is a second and more true way to spend your days. First, believe or admit or accept the fact that God has, quote, put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Okay, that's kind of a confusing way of saying you've got eternity in your heart, but you're super duper limited. You and me not knowing how to control things and create things for our own good is okay. That's not the problem. And that's what we always think the problem is, isn't it? How do I control and create things for my own good? I don't know how to do it just right. And it's Kohelet saying, I discovered that's not the problem. The fact that you don't know whether to open a business right now, is this the time or is later on a better time? Should we have kids right now or should we wait till we're done with college and then have a house? What, you know, how do I know the right time to do things? What, when, what do I invest in? How do I, when do we move? When do we quit our job? How do we, should I have a hamburger right now? Or when do I get to have a nice cold IPA? <laughs> well, he, if you approach these decisions thinking, I can know how to do this the right way according to the time it is and according to my vision of what good is, then you're spinning yourself up silly straight into the grave. I mean, it's, it really is. That's what he's getting at. If you're going to make these decisions based on what you're observing in the externals, you're already in trouble. If you approach these things thinking instead, well, God has put eternity in my heart. That means I want way more than I could ever get in 70 or 80 or 90 years. Way, way, way more. There's no way that I will find the right satisfaction for everything. So it's best to let go of that goal to be okay with my limitation. It's, that's, I think, also called humility. And, and then I cannot find out all that God is doing and has done. It's just not going to happen. So I'm not going to say, I need to know what's going on before I can act, and I, and I want to gain. Instead, right when it feels really crappy, I remember... You know, I don't know how to control this. I don't know what's going on. I remember God is trustworthy. He's working on a long creation project, and he's currently in the midst of that process. And he's made me, and he loves me, and I'm okay. And I don't need to know the times or the ways to make things better. Who could actually know that? Only God, really, truly. So I need to know and never forget that God is present and working with me, He's making me, my family, and my neighbors right now. He's making us. We will become beautiful all in his tove time. Therefore, Kohelet, I think, reveals two massive truths as a conclusion. The first one is verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good. Now, here he does use the Hebrew word tove to do good, to make goodness. The original creation is when God says, I see this and it is very tove. This is the best thing possible, to do good as long as they live. Uh, Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift. Here we go. Gift again. 
to man. Rather than toiling for gain, you toil because it's a gift. It's good for us. Tov for us. Well, now, at one hand, you might be kind of a no-duh moment, right? That it is good to be happy and to do good. <laughs> hey -o, thanks a lot. That's really wise. Well, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? But here's where that context really pops. It really makes it sink in. Because in the first part, as the king Kohalat devalues the good life, he says, what's the point? You can't control stuff anyway. Why? Because in that mindset, he found no reliable way to do this good in a way that was for sure to bring gain through his own effort. Instead, he saw that everything came from the hand of God regardless. You know, whatever happens seems to be out of my... And he perceived that whatever he could gain through, through, through uh, work and toil and whatever... He's like, I could pile it up, but no matter what I gain, it's not going to last through death. So he, that's that whole point in chapter two. It's, it doesn't come with me. I have to leave it to somebody I'm not with. However, as Kohelet becomes not the king, but the wise one in our chapter three passage, he has a new angle, and I think it's one with a lot more light. He says that perhaps he was looking at good things through the wrong lens. If the good works or the good things of life are for the purpose of gain or securing oneself or winning or anything like that, they end up being pointless because A, you're not in control like you think, and B, we all die anyway. From this angle, then, the good things of life are just as pointless as the bad. It's all the same in the end. No meaningful effect. It's all vanity from that angle. But if the good things of life... And the good things prepared beforehand, remember in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, he'll say we've, he's given us good works that he prepared beforehand for us. That's one of the things he gives to us, a gift. And he says, it's not so that we would gain or get better than we are. He gives because we're, these gifts are good in and of themselves. They're good for the entire world, and everything in it changes with this kind of gift from God. Two totally different ways of looking at good work. Because when you're reading the first one and you're reading, you know, I saw I wanted to be wise and not foolish. I wanted to be responsible and not an idiot. You're like, well, that all seems like good stuff. But he said, when I was doing the good stuff so that I could make it or feel better or get somewhere or gain, 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 it was all totally pointless. When I started to see it as the gift of God, well, that became something that actually brought meaningful effect and was therefore not in vanity. So here is a parable to think of it uh, as we close here. This is from that author I, I quoted right at the beginning. His name is Peter Rollins. He has a short little book of modern-day parables. And this one is titled, The Reward of a Good Life. All right? The Reward of a Good Life. Begins this way. Two brothers embrace faith together at an early age. One of the brothers took his commitment very seriously and wrestled diligently with the Scriptures. 
When he became a man, he gave up all of his worldly possessions and went to live in the poorest and most dangerous area of the city. Many of his friends deserted him, and because of his uncompromising dedication to the oppressed, he lost the one woman that he truly loved, forsaking the possibility of marriage for the sake of his work. The pain of this separation haunted him all his days. And because the conditions in which he lived, because of the conditions in which he lived, he was frequently ill. When he died, no one was present, and only a handful of people showed up for his funeral. In contrast, the other brother never took his faith seriously at all. As a man, he became very settled, satisfied, and influential. He married the woman he loved, had many children, and lived in a beautiful home. As his satisfaction grew, his thoughts of God dissolved into nothing. He gave little to charity unless it was prudent to do so for the sake of his reputation, and he paid little heed to those who suffered around him. After a long and happy and successful life, he died in the arms of his loving wife and his children surrounding him. In heaven, God called the two brothers before him, embraced them both warmly, and to each he gave an equal share of the kingdom. As one might expect, the brother who had been faithful all his years was surprised. He had given up everything to live what turned out to be a torturous life of hardship. However, his surprise was a joyous surprise. He turned to his brother, smiled deeply, and said, Today my joy is finally complete, for we are together again, brother. Come, let us break bread together. And in response, the brother said nothing, but he began to weep over the wasted life that he had led. The end. Notice he began to weep over the life of vanity that he had been embracing. And this beginning to weep means he changed. That gift that the Father or God gave to him changed him. He saw it. He, and he was regretful. He said, what did I do? A life that was filled with gain and success that in the end produced no meaningfully good effect or tove effect. Yes, it was settled. It was a settled life and secured and safe and satisfying. Folks, I was a youth pastor in downtown Portland for eight years, and it was difficult to find parents who wanted their kids to have a good, a tove life. They wanted settled, secured, and safe and satisfying just as this second brother did, and his life was not tove, and it was not yappe, beautiful or handsome or good. And he recognized it. So Koholat says this to conclude, finally, the last two verses of our passage today. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Hmm, that's different than, you know, everything seems to just sort of come and go. But what God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. 
That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So I think we, and that's, and that's the end of our passage. And I think we so often imagine that God gives goodness to us in relation to how we act or in relation to what we choose. Act properly and choose well, and that will guarantee that you gain good big stuff in this world. We use this to judge people, you know. Those who have gained a lot, we imagine, must be so good. Those who are really struggling must be so bad. But Kohelet teaches us that the ethical, the beautiful and good act is a good thing in and of itself, not good in where it takes you or what it gets done. It's the goodness of actually living in it. It needs no external validation from others. The first brother died a nobody, didn't he? He wasn't influential or successful in the ways that the world judges those things, because in and of itself, It was the very work of God that endures forever. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. It's either tov or yapa. It's either good and beautiful or it's not. And this work has already been. God started it long ago and he continues now as God is continuing to make everything and create everything. And this good kind of creating work will always be forever. It lasts beyond the grave. And then the final closing line adds one more detail. This is good, beautiful, working and making and creating of God. It's happening, and it's going to be a work that seeks the one who has been driven away. You know, notice how he says in in this closing line, that which is already has been. So what's already going on, we've already seen. God's creating that, uh, how do I put this? The things that God did already have been done. Now, the current seeking, the current working that he's doing is seeking what has been driven away. So it's, he's not, necessarily creating new things in terms of ex nihilo, out of nothingness, but his creation is ex vetere, out of the old or out of uh, what has been broken and shattered and driven away from his life and love and goodness. Seeking out the one who's been driven away, like that second brother in Peter Rollins' parable, but it reminds you of the prodigal son too, doesn't it? Returning to his father. When he returns, the father gives goodness to him regardless of what he's gained or achieved or accomplished or settled or secured. He gives because of his great love for his son. And this way of giving what is good, this is the way of our creator And we are fully alive when we trust that this is the way for us as well, to be people who give what is good, grace and mercy, forgiveness and love, patience and kindness, giving of our possessions and our time, our attention. And the greatest acts of generosity is to give somebody your attention. 
And so no matter what time we're in or what epoch we're in or what era we find ourselves in, those don't determine the way we are. We trust that eating and drinking and taking pleasure in our work is not only possible and it's very good to do, but it's defined by God. It's not just enjoy this stuff or whatever. It's enjoy this stuff in this way, which is God's endless tove and yappe, his goodness and beauty he created into the, into the world we're in and the creative work he is currently doing as he is making or makes all things beautiful in their time. And so we rest in what is true. We take a deep breath and then we give up on trying to get somewhere or trying to get bigger, better, more influential by doing good works that we perceive to be good in our time and in our era. And instead, we heed the words of a bumper sticker that I once saw on an old Winnebago while driving through Montana. And it said, the journey is the destination. We're not trying to get somewhere better. The journey is the destination. The, the, we are learning the humble, trusting, non-anxious, and non-controlling way of the Christ and entrusting ourselves to his way of giving, giving of ourselves with grace and love toward others because that gift is the only thing that has any meaningful effect in the world. It is by grace that we're effectively changed, <laughs> meaningfully changed. That's what Paul is saying. It's amazing how that apostolic teaching in the first century harkens all the way back to this wise teacher king who's trying to figure out life. Isn't it beautiful? And when life brings pain and difficulty, we rest in God's creative work, even through that pain. And unlike the people of Kohelet's day way, way, way back, we now have Easter to remember. So we enter into this holy week with our eyes on resurrection as the validating moment in human history where Jesus says to us, my way is not the way of gain because humanity has already been given everything we need for life. My way is the human way of knowing God fully fruitfully, by entrusting myself to him all the way into humiliation. I'm not fighting for my reputation. All the way into loss. I never had anything more than poverty level. All the way into brutal and misunderstanding types of treatment. People didn't get me. They beat me up. They threw me out. All the way into death. Because not only is God good, but his works endure forever. Even through death, resurrection is ours. Living in that way of Christ brings you right through. So we press on, humble, trusting, believing women and men and children, living with God not to get to a better spot or a more satisfying destination, but because the journey of living with God is our destination right now, and we can be at peace in that. We don't have to understand all of the times and eras. It's a peace that goes beyond understanding, and he is making all things beautiful and good, yappa and tov, in their time. Amen. Amen.